Well, folks, it gets no more real than this part two with Brother Kenneth Matthew. God taking him from the bottom to the top. Enjoy. All right. Well, folks, again, listen, if you want someone to be healed, saved, delivered, and set free by the power of God, you want to tag that person because what Madison can do for you, what men can do for you, I'm telling you, God, by his awesome power, his awesome might, he, he'll do it for you. So last time, folks, we heard how he started young, um, started through, you know, drinking and then smoking and then it graduated weed. Then we got into, I think it was heroin and oh, we're all over the place in the States, life almost taken, uh, you know, in fights, uh, almost lost mine. Uh, I'm like, this happened all to one person? Yes. Because listen, the devil is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And what I have found out, ladies and gentlemen, is that when your life is, it has such a unique purpose attached to it, the enemy needs you out, out of the game, out of the show, just out. But I tell you what, (laughs) you will not be out until God says so. When God's hand is upon you, He'll reach down into the gutter and he'll pull you to the utter. And that's what we have happening here. So we heard some of the beginning story, you know, the front end of it. And I believe our brother Matthew will do a recap and then he'll take us on. And so Bermuda world, we are now going to welcome on board one more time to real news, real, a man of God, God spared his life. For such a time as this, our brother Kenneth Matthew. God bless you, sir. Good evening, Pastor, and God bless you as well. Thank you for having me one more time. It is my delight. I am truly in awe of how God moves and what he does. And I believe that far too many don't hear of these accounts and say that they don't understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he did for the Hebrew boys, what he did for Daniel and Alliance, Dan, he did it for you. You got some stories that, wow, I'm like, this is biblical here. And so with that, I'm blessed to be your pastor, to be able to present you and to be able to bless Bermuda and the world with um, your testimony. And so, sir, the floor is yours. If you want to give a review and then head on, go right ahead. Brother Matthew, you are welcome. First of all, I'd like to give honor to God and and you as well, Pastor. And it's an honor and a privilege to have you as my pastor. And it's so enlightening that having you as my pastor. Yes, I'll definitely like to give a little recap of partly. And I often tell the story, my life story, and I describe it in this simple way. You know, my story disclosed in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it is like now. And I started telling them what it used to be like. And I spoke last week of the way my life was going when I was a child, when I was younger, and uh, I had to be torn between two parts. You know, I was going to school at Purvis as Kenny Bruce, and then I go to live with my grandparents, and I was Kenny Matthew, you know, and that was a part of, of my younger, younger days, and that was psychologically really enabling me to divide myself and try to be two people at the same time. And that was very distressful as a child. And then I brought the story on to where I went to 
you know, work sex school and I started to smoke weed and drink up in the school and railroad tracks and things like that. And then I started gravitating on. And that was what it used to be like. And a part of that, you know, I'm going to tell more about the stories of the horrors because a lot of times we think that, you know, the drug life is, is, is so fabulous and glamorous and all that, you know, even though I was hiding a lot of this and, you know, you know, perpetrating such a fraud as far as, you know, showing that, oh, you look good and all that, but the drugs are really taking me down. And where I'm going to start off with, you know, when I went into the uh, Bermuda Regiment in the Army and this part, I was in the Army and I done the Corpus Carter and I became a, a corporal in, in the Bermuda Regiment. And they were flying me different places like in Canada. I went to Canada for special training and I, I enjoyed all that part of it because I was into different areas of you know, martial arts and things like that. And so as I was in the, as I was in the Bermuda Regiment, we went down to Jamaica and uh, they sent me down a, a head of the Bermuda Regiment to organize the camp and organize the area where we're going to have the camp. And while I was down there in Jamaica, you know, I was smoking weed and going up to the hills with the Jamaicans and all that. And as I was coming out of the hills in Jamaica with some marijuana, right, I was walking down and this was in Port Antonio, Jamaica. And as I was walking out, the Jamaican guy was saying something to me, but I couldn't quite understand his accent was so deep. He was telling me, watch out, be careful. A Jamaican police officer came up and pointed his gun at me like that and said, don't move. And it was at night and I ran down the alleyway. And as I ran down the alleyway, I was trying to run through and I threw the weed over the, over the, it was a bamboo gate and I threw it over the gate. And as I threw it over the gate, you know, I spun around, as I spun around, he fired his gun and the gun shot and the bullet hit me right here in the head. Wow. It's showing how God's angels were watching over me. Even at that time, I didn't know. So as he came down, he he was pretty sad. He was calling me all sorts of names, you know, in, in Jamaican. And I gripped his hands and I was fighting him. And we're fighting. And all, then all the other police and people started gathering around. And then they finally, they arrested me, had me handcuffed. And they took me back to the police station in Port Antonio. And that's when the captains from the Bermuda Regiment and the JDF came down and they said, do you have anything? He said, it's Gunja Boy. I'm a Gunja Boy. Look at him. I'm Gunja Boy. Blood was all over my face. All I had on a white shirt and it was all over me. And they said, well, you didn't find no Gunja. You didn't find none. But little did they know that the people that I was with took the Gunja and they ran. So they didn't find any. So they had to let me go. And that night in Port Antonio was a big fighting. The JDF and the police were fighting because you don't arrest the army guy along with that. So that that's one of the stories where I ended up being shot in Jamaica. And I was just, it spared my life. As I spun around, the bullet just grazed me. And I, and I still have the scar today. I don't know if you can probably see the scar, but so that's just one incident, you know. And I, I'm going to, I'm trying to paint the picture to let you know how God had his hand over my life, even then I didn't realize it, even though I was caught up in, in a drug world. Another time, you know, right here in Bermuda, right here in Bermuda, I had credited some drugs from a, a, a drug dealer. He was he sold drugs and I didn't pay him. And because I didn't pay him, you know, I was dodging him. And this particular day, I dashed into Middletown to get something and he was there and I couldn't get away. I was on my bike. I couldn't get away. He beat me severely, severely beat me. And I don't know I mean, he said, yeah, when I get you next time, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to kill you. Da, da, da. And today, that young man got shot dead. That young man in Bermuda got shot dead in Bermuda. Now, I, I look back at some of these things and say, why did I get spared? And I don't know. I do know now. But at that time, I said, why did this happen? 
That's just some of the things. So I'm trying to paint the picture to let someone else out there know that even though these things are happening to you and God is spurring your life for some unknown reason, you know, and like that article says, get off of drugs ASAP. Get as soon as you can because you don't know what's going to happen. I've just got spirit. And if, and if someone cares to ask a question. Okay, let me get to the questions that I have here. Hold on. First question here. Uh, Brother Matthew, did your grandparents know that you were on drugs back then? What did they say? You must have been devastated. Did your grandparents know? Well, my grandmother didn't know directly I was on drugs, but my grandmother had had 18 children. She had 14 boys. Yes, she had 14 boys and four uh, daughters. Um, But one day my grandmother saw me smoke a cigarette. And boy, that cigarette said, now you're smoking. I guess something else coming next. So she had an idea. She never knew directly. And, and you know, I just, she never saw me clean. She never saw me when I, you know what I mean, put my life back together. But I know that one day, that great getting up morning. Yeah. yeah. I love my grandmother and I loved everything that she did for me. And that, you know, so it, excuse me, it brings it brings tears to my eyes because if we weren't the prayers of the saint availeth much and and her prayers is probably what got me back you know so i, I i'm grateful for that I, i'm truly grateful so seeds that she planted yes definitely are, are being harvested right now mm-hmm. definitely right. one more question here i see Brother Matthew, what did your parents say, especially your father? Well, I actually, you know, my, my father and I got high together. I I did. I smoked weed with my father. I done other things with my dad. And um, not that I'm proud of them today, but my dad did change his life later on in the life before he passed. And I, I'm truly glad. My dad saw me clean. So that he was very proud of. He saw that when I came back to Bermuda, he saw that I was no longer using drugs. But that part of my story, I'm going to tell a little bit later on, because, you know, a lot of people didn't believe that I was really not using drugs when I came back. You know, they said, oh, he's going to go back using drugs. But they didn't realize that once God delivers you, truly delivers you, you never go back. But see, I, that part I will I will explain a little bit later on. But this is a part here that I want to tell also was about what happened in Boston. I, I landed somehow I always landed these fantastic jobs. I had. Uh, snow plowing business in Massachusetts. And um, I was plowing snow for the uh, professor of Boston University. He lived across the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I lived just off the street from Harvard. And uh, I was smoking cocaine all one night and drinking alcohol. And, and, and I'm saying, yeah, the snow is coming down. And, you know, and I said, yeah, I'm going to make a lot of money. You know, I know I'll make a lot of money this day. So, you know, and it had to be done by six o'clock in the morning. So, as the sun, you know, was getting ready to start coming up, it was starting to get a little daylight. I pulled a snowplow out. I started plowing snow, and the snow was really heavy and thick and wet, and I was clogging up the snowplow. So I said, man, I'm worried about this. I'm going back inside have another hit. I went back inside and smoked some more cocaine. And when I came out, you know, I, uh, I decided to, like, yeah, clear this snowplow. And I stuck my hand in the snowplow, and it cut my finger off. As you can see, part of my fingers are missing. I don't know if you can see right? Yeah, and um, um that, that's and the thing about it. I was so high that I didn't feel it. I knew it was there because I could see the blood and all that. And 
I ran back next door and I said, hey, you got to call the ambulance. You got to call the ambulance. And they, and they was panicking. They couldn't take me. So the fire department came first and I had it all bandaged up and I was holding it above my head. And I'm going to show you how crazy this thing is because I, you really need to hear this part because when when the ambulance came after the fire department left, the ambulance came and they, they took me to the hospital and they, they put some needles in my hand. And by the time my body started to, I started to come down from the drugs. My body started to warm up and the pain started to hit. And so they operated on me and nobody else operated me. The, I remember coming to in the operating room and, and the guy says, this guy's got so much drugs in his body. We didn't even know what the anesthesiologist said. I don't know how to put him back out. And, and this happened six o'clock in the morning. They put me back out. I didn't come to to 12 o'clock that night. I came back to after the operation and the operation didn't take that long. Now my hand is all swollen, all bandaged up. And when I went back home, all I thought of was getting high all over again. I couldn't even hold a crack pipe up. But my, my hand was bandaged up. But the drugs, I just wanted more drugs. That's how insane this drug is. Because I did all the drugs. I'd done marijuana, heroin, cocaine. But cocaine was a, more or less the drug of choice that I was using at the time. But that's just, I just want to paint the picture to some, someone out there who, who doesn't realize how dangerous this is. Because it takes you mind, body, and soul. It takes everything from you. It, it, it made me think of that more than I thought of eating food. I used to I used to stand to a 7-Eleven and beg for money. And if I got $10, you know what I mean? I could be hungry. I mean, really hungry. I took $2 and went and bought some Debbie cupcakes and a little bottle of, of, of water or soda at the time and spent $8 on crack out of the 10. That's how bad it was. And I'm painting that picture to let people know that, you know, that drugs would take you to the bottom and when I say to the bottom, I mean, you would sit in the park and watch people eat and throw their, their, their Burger King or their uh, uh, Kentucky Fried in the garbage. And you go in behind them and take it out and eat it. I'm telling you how, how bad it was. I, I remember clearly chasing a dog away from a dumpster. My God. Losing my finger, getting shot, you know, um, getting beat up, you know. And the parts of going to prison because you didn't care about driving a car or driving down the street, you know, um, without any license. I remember ripping off drug dealers. I had a Chevy van in, in Massachusetts and I used to go down to the drug area and tell the guy I want so many, um, they call them $50 rocks, right? I used to rocks of cocaine. I tell him I'm on four and as he put the four in my hand, I would speed off in, in the truck and he'd be hanging on the door and I would kick him off the door as I turned around the corner and he would drop in the street and I didn't care. I just kept going. I knew I just couldn't go back in that area anymore for a while. My God. It was not glamorous, but those are some of the things, the risk that you would take because you don't value your own life. Question for you, Brother Matthew. Um, we're noticing that you had these jobs. You always managed to have a job. So here's the question based on that. It seems you were a functional addict initially. Can you expand on that? Yes. Actually, you know, see, I definitely was a functioning addict. And I didn't let people know directly that I, I was using drugs. You know, I mean, I worked for a prominent place in Bermuda at one time. And um, it was a nightclub that I worked for. You know, because I did work at Elba Beach at one time. I was night audit there at Elba Beach. And I, I lost that job because I couldn't stay awake at night to do the night audit because I got high all day. Like my grandmother used to say, you can't burn the candle on both hands. 
You know, I got high all day, so I couldn't stay awake at night, and I lost that job because of getting high. But then I landed another job behind that, right, at a prominent nightclub here in Bermuda. I was working in the accounts department. I was food and beverage manager. I was in charge of all the, all the alcohol. All the, and, and because of that, I met a lot of people, and drugs came into the picture. And, you know, that. So by saying that, I'm going to say something else, too. And I'm not going to call any names because I don't know if the statute of limitations have run out on anything, but there were two prominent people that were there. One was white and one was black. That were my boss. And they done a private cruise. And in order to get on this cruise ship, right, well, we're in a ship, but it was a cruise boat that how you cruise around Bermuda. Your name had to be on this list. You could not get on the boat. And once I was invited, I got on the boat. And once we got outside of the area, out came the party drugs. A briefcase of whatever you wanted. I couldn't believe it. Now, again, Pastor, again, those two people are both dead. And they were rich, rich, way rich. They owned a few large establishments in Bermuda. And they're both dead. I often say, why all of this death was all around me? I'm getting goosebumps all over me right now. Death was all around me. And I, I'm not me, but I believe there was an angel watching over me. I truly believe that. Yes. So you had a question, Pastor? I'm blown away by the easy availability of drugs in the island of Bermuda. You're talking about decades ago. So how much worse is it today? Oh, it, it, I, I don't even want to think about how bad it is today because I remember even back then, and I often tell people this, and, and that's why I'm so glad that you have a stance about the marijuana here in Bermuda because I remember an individual used to work down at the airport that used to get marijuana, and if it came off the plane and it was not that good or that potent, we sprayed. He used to bring it out of my house and lay it all on the floor, lay the newspaper down and spread it all over the floor, and we used to spray heroin all over it. What? And then sell it. And guys, you say that this is some fantastic marijuana. So I don't know what they're doing today, what chemicals that are in it. And today they got more chemicals in 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 there, the higher degree of THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, in, into, into the uh, marijuana because of the way they grow it. So I'm glad that you have a stance that marijuana should not be legalized. And some people are going to not like me for saying that, but it should not be legalized. It is a gateway drug. I am glad that you are a witness of my stance and why we ought not to have it regulated or legalized in any way. So God bless you for your forthrightness, your bravery in speaking to your personal experience. And no one can shoot that down. It's no your story. It happened. I, I lost a fantastic job. And I was going to school in, in Illinois. Jolliet Junior College, and I landed a job with Denny's as a manager. And because of marijuana, I lost that job. So I, so I can emphatically tell you that marijuana is addictive. 
And I don't care what anyone wants to say, because if you can look at this and I'll draw this quick reference and then we can move on. If a young man here in this island of Bermuda who's been smoking pot, don't know what he's really actually been smoking and he and they don't have it around. He arrived from from Hamilton up to Southampton to try to find it. They say, oh, no, it's coming out in Somerset. He'll ride to Somerset and he'll get up in Somerset. And they say, oh, no, we ain't got it. He'll start drinking a couple of beers and he'll race the bikes down to to Middletown and, or race down to the country. And, in an accident along the way or get there and they get angry, frustrated because it's not around. So it is addictive. It has different attributes that it makes you feel different ways. You get angry, frustrated, discontented. So you cannot tell me it's not having an effect. I know that it has in your scientists, your, you, you do biology, you know, it has an effect on, on your brain, on the hypothalamus part of the brain, on the serotonin and dopamines, it affects them. So you cannot tell me it doesn't affect you. If they don't get the marijuana, they'll try something else. And that's how I got introduced because we didn't have marijuana so that we started sprinkling cocaine into the tobacco and, and rolling that up. And that's how I started. Hmm. So we've got a quite a full picture here of what's been going on. And um, at this time, take, take us further into your story and share with us. So after, after I remember going uptown on the train. You know, after being in Catholic Charities, the lady said she helped me. And the word faith, I looked that up and she said faith mission. And we went uptown on the train. I got into my detox and I was telling this part about my story about my detox, how once I took off my clothes, I'll never forget. I was in that room taking off my, my sneakers and how they stuck to the bottom of my feet because I had cardboard in the, in the in the sneakers and the socks were sticking there and the room stank so bad. I thought it was someone else in the room and I turned around and it was only me. I told the part about where I had to reach over in that bag and take out some underwear and wring them out and put them on. And they were women's underwear. And I'm not proud of it, but I, I had to do that. I told the part of the story where I, I vomited, I defecated on myself. I urinated on myself the, the, the days that I, I was, you know, uh, detoxing and they only gave me aspirin. You know, I, I told the story, but I stayed there for that, that period of time, that two weeks. And then they had to, I had to move on. And they sent me downtown to the welfare office. And, and when I got downtown to the welfare office, you know, the lady finally called my name and I went up and I just started boiling and crying. I didn't know what to say to her. And she, she looked at the, the ladder and, that I was there and she just started ticking. Yes, yes, he needs this, he needs this, he needs this. And, you know, so then I went back to the detox center. And as I got to the detox center, they, they looked and they said, OK, then we're going to try to get you into a rehab. And, you know, it's it's. It's just so fortunate that God had his hand on my life. And I'm just so pleased, you know, because when I went to that, that rehab, that rehab was a mental institution, which is called Creedmoor. And if anyone wants to look it up, it's in Long Island, New York. It's Creedmoor. It's a mental institution. And um, I went there. And while I was in that, that, that rehab, things started to happen to me. And I often started to tell the story last week about, you know, the caterpillar and the, and the butterfly. You know, the caterpillar crawls around in the muck and the myrrh and, and all that. And he goes into that cocoon and that metamorphosis happened. That was my, my rehab. That metamorphosis started to happen. A change started to come about. I started hearing the message of hope. I started hearing that I no longer had to live like this anymore. And I, I needed to get a lot of things out. And I had to I had a great therapist. Her name is Stephanie McLean, you know, who helped me to realize that I was a person, a good person. I was not a bad person. I just done bad things. And that was so important for me to hear. Because, see, I often thought at that stage that, you know, I didn't want to live. I wanted to die. But she said, you know, you're worth living. You know, God didn't make junk. You know what I mean? 
right? And he, she was telling me that, you know, those things, and, and I needed to hear that. I remember, and, and often often nights that uh, 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 I walked around the circle and around the building, and I was singing gospel songs and that old spiritual hymns that my grandmother had taught me and that I had learned in, in, in Sunday school and things like that. I never forget the times that in that in that rehab where where it was so difficult to sleep at night, you know, that I had to borrow a walkman and put on my ears so I could hear gospel music or I could hear I could hear motivated speakers or I could hear something that was positive because the demons that were inside of my head, the demons made me think of nothing but getting high, running away from this place and just running away, just not trying to care anymore. And I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to get clean because everything inside of me was crying out to just go get more. It was a horror. It was a horror. And the thing about it, I was living this horror. You know, I, I never forget, you know, the times that, you know, um, I, I would talk to other people. and They would tell me that things will get better. And I'd say, they're not going to get better for me because I'm not worth it. But they said, just hold on. Okay. They hold on. They took me out to different AA meetings and NA meetings. And, and I started hearing the message. We have a song, One Day at a Time, Sweet Jesus. You know, um, I think of that. You know, that drugs have more power. I, I often have look back on that. You know, that period of time in my life where I was in that rehab, and you know, I, I I didn't know if I was gonna make it or not. I didn't know. One part of me wanted to, and one part of me was just crying out to to leave it alone. Just go ahead. You don't need this. I'm sorry. Sometimes I pause, Pastor, because you know it it, 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 it it comes back to me like like just yesterday. Yeah, yep, and that's we have no problem with that because that is a part of us just feeling a bit of where you were at and understanding that it was a dire place, a desperate place, and that indeed it would take the hand of God to lift you out of that place. And, and there you go, talking about the hymns of old and how that upbringing, you know, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 22 and 6, if you train the child, and when he's old, if he lives to be old, he's going to make his way back. And, and this, is, this is what we hear happening with you. And so, you know, um, I have one question. They were asking, did you go through where you were having hallucinations? Do you remember Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Without any wow. question or doubt. Okay. And so therefore, one of the things that I don't want to have a hallucination because I used to see and smell. I, I'll, I'll be in there and a smell will come and it will smell like drugs burning or it smell like marijuana or smell like cocaine or heroin. You know, and so therefore that kicked off something and, and kicked off a craving, kicked off, you know, a thought. You know, and those things like that, you know, um, oh, without a doubt, Pastor, I, I, I must I must tell this part about it because it's so important that, you know, I had three books. Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous and the Bible. <laughs> and therefore, I read the Alcoholics Anonymous book from cover to cover. I read the Narcotics Anonymous book from cover to cover and I read the Bible from cover to cover. And that was the only book that saved my life. Hallelujah. All the other books talk about a higher power. And that higher power, I say, is okay. But if your higher power, when you fall on your knees and that drug is crawling and you can't stop that craving, that ain't no higher power. But the Bible, when I read that, 
I used to get filled. I used to get the craving used to leave. The demons used to flee from me. I couldn't explain it at that time. I can explain it now, but I couldn't explain it at that time. Those were the three books that I had, and I carried them books. That's why even when, and I'll tell this other part of my story, but I'm going to briefly, that's why even when I came back to Bermuda, I was such a book thumper when it came to those programs in Bermuda, but I also told them the main book is the Bible. Now, say this, and I'm going to say this real, real quickly. All those books have spiritual principles, and their spiritual principles come out of the Bible. <laughs> they all come out of the Bible because, and I'm going to say this, Alcoholics Anonymous started in England in Oxford Group. Oxford Group used the Bible for their spiritual principles. And Narcotics Anonymous asked Alcoholics Anonymous could they use the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to start theirs. So all right back to the Bible. Right back to the Bible. Amazing. That's the answer. That's the answer. That was the answer. Anyway, um, moving on to because I, I know that we're we're getting to the part now where that was part of my cocoon was in that in that rehab was I was in that cocoon and that metamorphosis that change was coming about and that change had to change my whole DNA had to change my whole all the inside of me had to change you know my thinking you know so a man thinking so is he. You know, I had to change my thinking, my ideas, my habits. You know what I mean? I had to change my eating habits, my sleeping habits. I had to change the way I, the people I, I was around because, you know, I couldn't go around them same old people, places and things. Because if I go around them same old people, I want to do them same old things and I get them same old results, pain, misery and suffering. I didn't want that. Mm -hmm. I didn't go there no more. So I had to watch. Even in my rehab, my, my counselor, Ms. McLean, said to me, she said, you can't hang out with everyone here in this rehab. She said, because some of them have got your best interests at heart. You know, and um, because I used to say I had one of the guys in there whose name, whose name was Sweeney. And I thought Sweeney was so cool. You know, I thought he was so, you know, had it going on. And, you know, I mean, and she says, he's going to relapse. And if you don't want to relapse, you have to break your friendship. And I thought it was very difficult. I thought that was mean of her, you know, but she was saying she had my best interest at heart. She was trying to tell me that she could see things that I couldn't see. It's like, like, Pastor, like you see things that we can't see as a pastor. She saw things that I couldn't see. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to break a friendship with him, and eventually I broke a friendship with him, and he did go out and relapse. But I didn't. <laughs> you know, I didn't. So we broke our friendship. So then, you know, I, I they, they took me to this this place called Bridge Back to Life, which is supposed to be a sober house. It was downtown Brooklyn. And every day I, I we had to make like three meetings a week. I made meetings every day of the week. I went to my AA meetings, my alcoholic anonymous meetings. I tried to find a church to, to, you know, go to, but it was just not, I just didn't feel, you know, comfortable in some of those organizations, I like to call them today. But, you know, um, I done everything that they told me to do. But this rehab 
and the silver house rather the silver house was not silver because there were guys in there still getting high guys in there that were still boosting stuff they were still stealing stuff you know guys were passing out in, in the shower to the needle in the arm you know it was stuff that was going on and i i didn't like it so i had to stay in my room and one night this guy must have been getting high in there and he had this girl in there which you weren't supposed to have him and her had a fight he caught her up and and i saw this and then they tried to tell me that i had to tell the police about it. i said no this is your silver house you tell them you know that so i called Stephanie and Stephanie said, "Love, we're going to come get you." And twelve o'clock that night, they came and knocked on the door and they said, "It's it's came out here." And they said, "We can't confirm or deny it, sir." I said, "I'm here." <laughs> they took me out of there and they took me all the way up to uh, uh was Queens Farmers Farmers Boulevard to a, a sober house that was really sober. But the thing about it is, see, that's why I try to say oftentimes, you know, it's it's about money because the money that the welfare people were giving me, these people. Down at the other server, I didn't want to release that funds that they were getting. So um, Ms. McLean said, you don't want me to call Al Sharpton because Al Sharpton will make sure. He... <laughs> so, I, I, and I smiled today because they released the money right away. Yeah. <laughs> they released it. So therefore, I had money to support myself and funds to support myself in this truly sober house. And that's mm-hmm. sort of how I had to make meetings five days a week. And then I started to go to different churches. I went to Allen. Temple with AME on Merrick Boulevard, you know, with you know the pastor there, I'm sure. Yeah, Floyd, Floyd, Floyd. Yes. Dr. Flake. Dr. Flake, yeah. And um, and one day a lady there, she was a minister there, she, you know, and, and I, I often wonder about this lady because she saw something, she said, you know, one day you're gonna be clean. She told me, and I said, Oh, I said, you know, I'm not, she said, one day you're gonna be clean. And I thank God that she saw that. I couldn't see that. But I, I wanted to, and I weren't using, but I didn't know if I could hold on because even though I had been through this period, now it's gone about almost a year, and I still had thoughts. And the demons were still haunting me. The devil was still testing me, you know. And I often say the devil because there's are tools of the devil. The drugs are tools of the devil. They were still all in my head, even though I was not using, even though I was trying to change my ways, even though I was trying to change my thinking. But that lady saw it. She truly saw it, you know. So I stayed there for a while, and then, you know, and again, this is this is my cocoon, because you know, uh, in in my cocoon, I started getting around more positive people, and the po- more positive people I I got around, I started to adapt some of their positive ways, positive attributes, and those were great ideas. And then I got a sponsor who was a retired police officer. And he taught me a lot because he helped me. And he some of the sayings that I use today about God didn't deliver me from shark infested waters to die on the beach. He gave me that saying. And I brought it back to him. You hear other people using it today. He 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 taught me. He said, you know, he was one once told me that God didn't make junk and things like that. You know, you know, you're worthwhile and you're worth it. You know, and and you know that I remember he bringing me because when I was in my my rehab. So when I first met him and then when I was in the silver house, I go, went to meetings and I saw him there speaking at meetings. And, and, you know, he started giving me his secondhand stuff. His secondhand shoes were like brand new to me. I was just so glad to have them. His secondhand jeans were I was glad to wear them, you know, because they felt brand new to me. But he was just showing me a better way of living. And he was a retired police officer. Right. <laughs> Who who himself had many years clean because he himself, and he's been to Bermuda a few times, right? He's been to Bermuda a few times. He was very instrumental in me coming back home to Bermuda. 
as well. And I'll tell that part of the story a little bit later on. Right. But at, at this stage, now you can understand what's happening. The metamorphosis that's trying to change. My life starting to change. I'm starting to feel a little bit better about myself. And, you know, and then I started getting little small jobs because I, you want to feel worthwhile. So, you know, I often was good with my hands. You know, I mean, I had different trades like, you know, I knew a little bit about masonry, a little bit about carpentry, you know, a little bit. So so some of the the uh, people that were in the neighborhood of my silver house, they said, yeah, yeah, we need somebody to sweep up or do this. And I did that and I, I paid and you know what I mean? And I done good things with my money. I didn't do no bad things of mine. I done good things. I started saving it. I started buying myself a little bit of nicer clothes or or stuff like that. And and so those little things started to happen. So then one day, my sponsor and a few of the brothers said, "It's time for you to go back to Bermuda." I said, "No way, no way, am I going back home?" And they said, "Yeah, it's time for you to go back to Bermuda." My sponsor said to me, he says, because they're dying in Bermuda, it's hand-to-hand combat. Hand-to-hand combat meaning drugs on one hand, money in the other, and it's combat. He said, they're dying on Court Street in Bermuda because he had been to Bermuda and he had seen this for himself. So I came back to Bermuda and I stayed at my step-parents, my father and my stepmother's house. I stayed there for like two and a half, almost three weeks. I said, I can't take this. I can't take Bermuda. No way. You know, I've been out of Bermuda all these years and I jumped on a plane and I went back and I went back to the sober house. He and a few more of his friends says, no. You have a message to carry. And they took up the funds and gave me another ticket and some spending money. Go back to Bermuda. He said, that's your home, your people. You need to help them. I'm scared. I don't know if I can really do this, but he says, don't worry. We're here for you if you need me to be. And so I ended up getting back, coming back here to Bermuda. And that was in 2000. 2000. I came back home in 2000. And I came back home and I started sharing at different places and different meetings and going around and, and speaking to different people about not using drugs and things like that. And um, some fantastic things started happening. I started working for a company in Bermuda, and uh, I don't mind mentioning this gentleman's name. You know, I started working for Butterfield Valley, driving a truck. And but I every lunch hour, I had the young men gathering around me, and I was talking to him about not using drugs anymore. And Mr. Jim Butterfield from his office was seeing through his camera that I was seeing, and he called me to his office one day, and he said. Why is everyone gathering around you all the time? I said, well, I talked to him about not using drugs. He said, you ever thought about being a counselor? It's me, absolutely, but I don't, you know, I, I need to go back to school. He said, well, go up to the college and see what's offering up there. So I went up to the college and um, I came back and I told him, he says, okay, he'll pay for it for me to go to the college. I went there and I came back with 3.75 GPA. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's the courses with Miss Eater up there and a few of the other psychological courses and things like that. And I've done all that. So when I came back, he says, what are you going to do now? This means, well, I need to go away to college and, and, and that. He says, okay. He says, but you got to promise me one thing. I said, well, he said, you come back to Bermuda and help your people. I said, yeah. Mr. Butterfield paid for my education, my tuition, my apartment, 
my car, my books, my computer. They gave me $500 a week salary. My God. That's All amazing. Right. And I took nine courses and passed every single one with honors. Matter of fact, here in Bermuda, they didn't believe that I passed the courses. They called the director of the Pennsylvania Certification Board. And that lady told him, yes, he passed. Because you can go in there, all you go in there with is a pencil. They give you the pencil, matter of fact. You don't go in there with nothing. No, no phone, no bag, no wallet, no nothing. And all you do is you when you take that and I pass it. <laughs> the courses. Yes, indeed. I came back home to Bermuda and I, I started to work and I started getting I got a few jobs with different agencies and things like that. And I was volunteering down at Turning Point and, you know, working with a few people down down at Turning Point. Miss Smith, who's passed on, and God bless her soul, you know, and, and a few other people. And then I landed the job at, at Westgate, right? I was working under another director at that time, and then under Dr. Bucci Gross, who was a psychologist. And then after that happened, a um, few of the people that contracts were up, I ended up writing the whole drug program for, you know, alcohol and drug uh, education. And, and worked in the Department of Corrections for a number of years. Wow. Wow. Let me, I'm, I'm going to put a pause on it. Mm-hmm. Now that you're at Westgate, someone has written a comment because you helped them. Um, I know this young man because even while he, you and I both actually must have connected with him in different ways because I wrote a book and I got him to do the forward for it because of him coming through the wilderness. Yet when he was in the wilderness at Westgate, I'm going to read to you what Raymond Wapaban Simons has, (laughs) he has shared. Some of it will fit here and I'll read the rest. He says, when I was at Westgate 2008, 2009, I had to take a mandatory drug education class because my crime was drug related. And this brother, that's you, brother Matthew, was the teacher. I enjoyed his class so much. He taught with such passion and heart. He genuinely, he genuinely encouraged us to stay far away from drugs. And because he had his own experiences, made his class all the more interesting and relatable. He treated us like brothers and I will never forget that. God bless you, brother. Enjoying your testimony. Enjoying your testimony. God bless you, Brother Matthew. That's his. No, that's God from bless you, brother. Fans. God bless you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And it's an honor and a privilege to be able to stand there and hear someone say that you've helped them. Because if I help one person, the least of these, yeah, I understand, Pastor. I feel it too. Yeah. I, I truly feel it. I'm trying to, um, uh, excuse me. Yeah, to God be the glory. Yes. It's real. It is real. It's real. Yeah, it is real. Because, you know, let me just say this while you're collecting yourself. This young man who I admire, he's married a number of years now, has a son that looks just like him. In other words, his life experienced that change too because of the grace of God. 
Yes. And now he is encouraging people through music and ministry of word and his testimony. And this is what we need Bermuda to hear. That there is a way away from the drugs and those that are in dire circumstances, they need to hear that there is hope. So again, I'm just, I'm blessed to be the facilitator. I'm blessed to be the pastor uh, able to present your story. I'm blessed to be under your tutelage. I'm blessed to be under your tutelage. And, 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 I, and it's an honor and a privilege, you know, to have such a pastor that's so vocal and speaks out and um, that's so straightforward, straight talk, you know, straight talk. And I love the straight talk because you don't pull no punches. Yes, you don't sir. pull no punches. You tell it like it is. And, and I love that, you know, yeah. and that's the way it should be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after landing a lot of them jobs, people came to me from all over. You know, they wanted me to uh, uh, help them open up different programs and all that. And then, you know, another man came to me and um, he said, listen, um, we want you to go to different places in the United States to see if we need to bring some of these programs to Bermuda. They sent me to Bellwood in Canada to stay up there and, and analyze that program and see that was a good program. They sent me off to to uh, 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 Betty Ford. Then they sent me off to Karen Warnersville, Pennsylvania. They sent me all over the country. And I was, you know, looking at these programs, going through the programs, going through the child and adolescence part of the program, the adult part of the programs, and, you know, and speaking at some of the programs and, and staying there and learning different things. I learned a whole lot about uh addiction programs and things like that. And and uh, then I became the case uh, intake manager. Then I was actually taking people from Bermuda, right? Taking overseas to putting them in rehabs, coming back to Bermuda and then flying back and forth and monitoring them and doing assessments on them and things like that. And that was an awesome experience as well. You know, this, like I said, this metamorphosis started to happen, you know, and these all this change came about. And, and sometimes I had, to, I had to back away from it because sometimes it started to get overwhelming and I didn't want to get it overwhelming that it could be overwhelming, be too much and think that I, I'm cured, as they would say at that time. You know, but I, I, I knew that I was never going to use drugs again, but I didn't want to think I was cured or think that I was better than or anything like that. So I kept it like the young man said, I kept it real. I kept my, my feet on the ground. I kept it grounded. And that was very important for me to do that. And it still is important for me to do that because sometimes we can get big headed. And if we get big headed, we think that we're bigger than or better than and we're not better than. Because like you said once before, and I heard you say, Pastor, when we all pass away, we're all dust to the ground and dust to the ground is all equal. We now have you in Bermuda mm-hmm. and you have definitely moved from the bottom. You are now nearing the top because you're at Westgate, you are um, a person that others go to for advice concerning their programs. So we still have a ways to go. Yes. So now that we are in Bermuda and you are a consultant to others for their programs, how about we conclude this and pick it up next week, Monday, for part three? Yes. In part three, we'll, we'll do the... Also, it's a general way, what it used to be like, what happened in part three, it's like, what it's like now. I think that's a great idea, Pastor. Yes, sir. And, right, I thank you for this gracious opportunity to present my story, and um, I thank you again. You, you are most welcome. God connects people for such a time as this. 
And I believe we are perfectly divinely connected with what's going on in the island of Bermuda. Because I believe your story is going to remind a lot of families of what they've complained about over the past decades that now for some strange reason, we're celebrating. And so we need to really be shaken back to understand the very slick plan of the devil. Mm -hmm. Take our young people, middle-aged people, families into bondage. You have a voice and God has given us this platform whereby your voice will be heard for such a time as this. And so I am very thankful. I believe God has given um, under my care spiritually yourself as a golden voice for this time. Thank you. And we're not rushing anything. No. I, I, I need you to share all you have to share. So thank you uh, for being here, available uh, to go every step of the way that we must in order to share what God has given you, has given, has allowed you to come through for such a time as this. You've painted the picture. We've seen and we are seeing the picture. And now we're going to understand what happens even when a black male comes with the ability, the, the academic ability, the life experience ability. How does Bermuda handle when the answer is in front of them? I also want to definitely give a shout out to Mr. Jim Butterfield and just thank God for him. You know, sometimes when we're black and they're white, people try to make it a black white thing and a boogeyman thing. And I want to lift up that we are all children of God and that this man stepped in and was literally a provider for you so that you can be a provider for so many. And so I, I have a, you know, I respect him, but I certainly have a deeper respect hearing your story and others are going to hear your story and we will understand uh, why he has been successful. It's because he has given, uh, given help and refuge to many to help make Bermuda better. So yes. again, thank you kindly and uh, God willing, should the Lord Jesus tarry. We'll meet you same spot <laughs> next week, Monday, and we'll yes. hear the next part of your story. So God bless you and certainly give your wife my greetings and my thanks for kidnapping her husband uh, for these wonderful moments of inspiration uh, week after week. So God bless you, sir. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. That's part two. Oh, and we're coming back for part three of this just fascinating story. I mean, this could be a movie. Uh, matter of fact, I, you know what I'm going to have to do? You know how I get when I start thinking? We're going to have to do some video of something. When the weather's better, because this winter weather, what happened right now, is illegal. But when, when we get some good weather, I need for him to take us to some places in Bermuda. And he tell me what he was doing at certain places. Because we've got to tell the story. It's a real story. We can go on location geographically here in Bermuda and say what was going on. What was the feeling?
what was happening. My God, we need to tell the story because who knows whose life is going to be spared, spared from a life of drugs, crime, of not being able to have the type of life they want. By God's grace, he was. So family, friends, please join me next week when we hear one more time from our brother Kenneth Matthew. And he's going to tell the story. He's going to keep on telling the story so that we may hear and understand where God has brought him from. This is real, folks. (laughs) It gets no more real than this. Oh, my goodness. So until next time, this is Dr. Maria, Real News Real, and we'll check you, check you later. Blessings. Abound. <music>